2: a living history production
3: i'm peter hart and i'm gary bain and together we're pete and gary's military history podcast hello 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 now before we start pete Uh, We've been receiving some suggestions uh, about how we might do a new introduction. Ooh, that's very exciting, Gary. And I've forgotten the latest one. Oh. So, what was it? Well, Gary, the suggestion was that I'm old. And I've forgotten. And you're deluded. Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) And together we're Pete Pete and Gary's Gary's Military History. History. What a
3: professional you are, Gary. What are we doing? Come on, enough nonsense. The public want history off us too. Well, it's another in our series of Laugh or Cry podcasts. Why are doing so many on this, Gary? I wonder why. You'll find out at the end. And uh, today it's Gunners. Gunners. You, weren't you going to call a book Gunner's Ear? Gunner's Ear, <laughs> I wanted to. <laughs> uh, so basically we're doing uh, about the artillery today.
1: Yeah, because the, 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 the artillery is the, the sort of master, the kingpin of the Great War battlefield, isn't it? Uh, there's, there's no doubt about that. Uh, they're, they're, they're just in unimaginable, unimaginable powers of destruction. So what is uh, the Royal Artillery? Let's look at the Royal Artillery. What makes up the Royal Artillery?
3: Oh, you mean sort of collectively... Well, you've got the Royal Horse Artillery. Uh, What did they have, Pete?
1: 13 pounder guns, usually. They're to support the cavalry, but they do a lot more than that.
3: Royal Field Artillery? That's the main lot. There's lots of them, aren't there? uh, What are they armed with, Gary? Well, generally 18 pounders or four. 5.5 Point five inch howitzers bangy things uh, up and down bangy things and then there's the royal garrison
1: artillery and they've, they've, they've got the medium and heavy guns uh, they go in size uh, all
3: sorts of sizes i would say um, and the artillery it sort of grew exponentially do you like that i love that you've been practicing that one? i asked that one <laughs> in size throughout the war now it's been estimated that the guns caused Far more casualties than any other weapon.
1: Yeah, and and, the, and it's not just firing at infantry. There, there's a constant, ceaseless, endless grind of uh, of a war with uh, a counter-battery fire uh, with the opposing gunners. Both sides take each
3: other on. Uh, and that's the problem, isn't it? Well, what is the problem? Well, the German gunners, they've wielded uh, weapons of equal and opposite power. Yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, so, um, So whatever you can do, we can do. Or vice versa. Yeah.
1: Now, the the Royal Artillery weren't in the front line. Of course they weren't. Uh, But they're the focus of German artillery fire. So they were very carefully dug in, weren't they? And you're going to be signaler Dudley Menau-Listenberg of 97th Battery, 147th Brigade, Royal Field Artillery. Go.
3: Uh, Another good old-fashioned English name. Yeah, yeah. Lovely. Now, he says, The gun emplacements set at 20-yard intervals closely resembled the tumuli frequently seen on Salisbury Plain, and had at the business end an aperture large enough to allow for elevation and a sweep of 80 degrees. Well dug in, and each skillfully camouflaged and protected by an overhead half-barrel shaped roof, supported by strong beams of timber on which was heaped several layers of sandbags, covered with turfs or green grass. It was difficult, even at close quarters, to detect that concealed here was a formidable unit of destruction, on either side of the spade of the trail, four steps led down to, on one side of the sleeping quarters of the detachment, and on the other, a recess for storing ammunition. The battery staff and signaler's pit was positioned 20 yards south of number one gun pit, in line under the trees. It was certainly a masterpiece of engineering in- ingenuity. Ooh. A holiday chalet, in fact. Six steps led down to a spacious floor above which heavy crossbeams of timber supported layers of sandbags and turfs similar to the gun pits. The interior was well appointed with tiered bunks along the walls, a space on the floor for the equipment and a frame holding the blanketed gas screen for placing over the door if necessary. The command post which was connected to the signaler's pit by a communication trench was a deep pit 7 foot by 7 foot by 7 foot provided with a small rough table sufficient to accommodate a message pad and a D3 telephone, an empty ammunition box as a bench, and two sleeping bunks tiered, one for the officer on duty and the other for the signaller at rest. A ladder led from the floor up to the command post above, up which the officer would shin when alerted to shout his orders to the guns through a megaphone from an aperture facing the guns.
1: Now, they're smashing...
3: Battery positions, aren't they? Are they typical, do you think? Uh, Probably not. He was just very lucky in his battery position. There were very few so well-ordered and supplied with comfortable dugouts. In sharp contrast is this gun position, uh, as told by gunner Austin Harity of uh, 241st Brigade, Royal Field Artillery.
1: Aye, in front of our guns ran a little gully and as the weather worsened, the overflow from the shell holes turned this gully into a little stream with the result that a number of old corpses became exposed showing all their bones as white as snow as this rainwater had been flowing through for almost three years. There was one body that lay exposed right in front of my gun, and the rains had washed the skeleton's bones like ivory. As a matter of fact, his ribs formed a kind of trap which filtered the brushwood that flowed down the gully and left a clear space in the middle of clean rainwater into which I used to dip my enamel mug for a clean drop of water. For a shave. (laughs) Not to drink. Hmm. I'm
3: glad he didn't drink it. It's a hell of a contrast, though, isn't it? It is, yeah. Now the Royal Artillery as a whole had had a lot to learn at the start of the war. Well, they had it. It was very
1: small, wasn't it? And, uh, and 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 they had no real idea of sustained uh, sustained fire. They they didn't not good at shooting off the map or or, or, or actually shooting uh, uh, guided by observers. They, 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 but but
3: what had changed by 1916? You think? Well, by then they'd amassed the trained gunners, NCOs, and officers who absolutely knew and understood their grim business. However, a few still clung to the idea of a gentleman's war where maths and gunnery could be ignored, but they're really already relics of the past.
1: And you're going to be Lieutenant Murray Rymer Jones, 74th Brigade RFA.
3: The senior subaltern said, I'm going to the major in his dugout to ask him if I can put on the meteor corrections on the gun. When he got there, the major, who was a regular, Mark you, an Irishman, said, My boy, this is a war, this is practical stuff. Forget all that nonsense they taught you at the shop. If it's cold, cock her up a
1: bit. Now, the the regular major, he's he's spouting his common sense, isn't he, in his his Irish accent. I presume that was meant to be. Um, But he's in fact a bit of
3: a fool, isn't he? But, But why is he a fool? Well, because... <laughs> Accurate, sorry, I'm thinking about his accent. Accurate meteorological corrections were essential to accuracy of the guns. And accuracy was essential if they to hit the German trenches and gun batteries
1: you can't just guess you've got to be precise in what you're doing isn't well, it well it's
3: a technical and scientific war Ooh.
1: now um, huge barrages would be fired uh, when the infantry went over the top but, the, but they're also responsible for firing the defensive barrages to protect the infantry during
3: German attacks and I think we'll We'll do that one first. So who am I going to be? You're going to be gunner Ivor Henson of the 311th Brigade Royal Field Artillery.
1: Recently, the infantry sent up SOS rockets, and for such contingencies, our guns have definite points to fire on. Points constantly checked by us each time that we man the observation posts. On this occasion, Gunner Clark, who is a real soldier, was on duty at the gun pit, and who, without a moment's delay after we passed on the gun position, the message, i.e. an SOS message, pulled the firing lever of his gun, which roused the other gunners to man the guns. The following day, Captain Sabastin, inspecting the gun, asked what had come of the muzzle cover. A leather cap strapped round the muzzle in between bouts of firing. Clark promptly replied, ''It's in the Jerry's line, sir.'' (laughs)
3: Mm. Mm. now the number of shells fired was extraordinary well yeah it is and the logistics of it
1: ask Ro- ask rob thompson uh the logistics of feeding the guns are, are just staggering uh yeah, do you know what even taking away the empty shell cases i the, 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 the well, that that was a bloody challenge and this was one that a wise and intelligent officer with your managerial and political skills gary and uh, could, could uh, avoid, and you're uh, Major Neil Fra- Fraser Titler
3: of A Battery 150 Brigade RFA. We heard we had once more changed our Divisional Royal Artillery Commander and that the new arrival, whose name is General B, was oh. coming to inspect the brigade in action. He's an individual well known for having a 106 fuse temper. That's, uh, I. that's I. A short fuse. That's the touch. It went off when it touched anything. And uh, non-delay language, <laughs> far in advance of any other general in the regiment. And worst of all, it was reported that his pet mania was the immediate clearance of all empty cartridge cases from gun positions. The careful return of empty shell cases is no doubt very necessary, but on some positions it must pay the taxpayer best to let them lie until the next advance. Casualties to horses and men while performing the slow job of loading them up into wagons may thus be avoided, but this was no excuse in the General's eyes, and he slated two batteries of the brigade unmercifully on account of them. It was to be our turn next day. Just behind our guns were two huge craters filled to the brim with shell cases, at least 10,000 of them. All seemed lost, however that night came inspiration. At dawn, I arose, found an old notice board, and swiftly, the battery painter covered its face with the following legends. C28, C53, dump. All 18-pounder and 4.5 cases to be dumped here. (laughs) Brilliant. Result? Much kudos for our very neat position and a broad smile on the face of our colonel standing behind the general. (laughs) That's a fantastic
1: story. It's a great book. Uh, I've forgotten the title of it, of course. I'll put it up on there. Who's it
3: by? Uh, Fraser Teitler. Oh, there's a coincidence. It is a coincidence, isn't it? Now, although the gunners handed out rough punishments to the Germans, uh, they were a much coveted target in themselves.
1: Yeah, and if they, uh, and this is where the air war comes in. If their gun positions are identified by uh, either aerial reconnaissance or flash spotting, uh, th- th- there'd be lots of close escapes for, 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 for the men on the guns, the British guns. And this is something that happened to uh, Neil Fraser titler slightly earlier in the war. So he's a different unit. At uh, th- this time, he's with D Battery 151 Brigade
3: RFA. Our few shells brought on a sharp reply from a 77mm whiz-bang battery, which made us beat a hurried retreat into the nearest dugout. At the critical moment, while diving down the trench towards the shelter, one of my great feet clad in trench waders got wedged between two duckboards. Two would-be Victoria Cross signalers, however, (laughs) emerged from the dugout and gallantly pulled me in, all somewhat helpless from laughter. Victoria Cross signals... (laughs) Uh, He means they're after a medal, yeah. (laughs) Oh, well, now
1: not everyone's so, so lucky. This is a sad tale coming up, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I mean, even if they're not killed, a German shell could mark the end of a sportsman's hopes and dreams. And a sad little story appeared in the Cockney War stories.
1: Yeah, we got a few quotes from that. Uh, not, not not that many, because a lot of them were unattributable. But this one was, and this is Lieutenant George Franks of the Royal Garrison Artillery. And he says this. Spider Webb was a Cockney from Stepney, I believe, who was with us on the Somme in 16, 1916. He was a splendid cricketer. We had a very... Stiff time for six or seven hours and were resting during a lull in the firing. Then, suddenly, Jerry sent over five shells. After a pause, another shell came over and burst near to Spider and his two pals. When the smoke cleared, I went across to see what had happened. Spider's two pals were beyond help. The cockney was propping himself up with his elbows, surveying the scene. I said, what's happened, Webb? The reply, blimey, what's happened? One over, one over, two bold." looking down at his leg, and I'm stumped, then he fainted. And on that rather sad and tragic uh, note, we'll we'll have a pause.
2: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.
3: Now, some gunners would be rendered mad by the thunderous detonations of German shells. Stress had built up and then just one shell could trigger a near-total mental collapse. And once more, this is what Major Neil Fraser-Titler of D-Battery 151st Brigade says. The cruelest blow of all was yet to come. 30 minutes before dinner, a 5.9-inch landed near our kitchen, and the cook went loony from shell shock. After rushing wildly about, he went to ground in a covered-in sap. No one could get him out. I tried to coax him out by crawling in with a biscuit. That would have got you out, Gary. (laughs) A sergeant grasping my legs to pull me out in case he bit me. Eventually, we had to take the roof off, and he was tied up and sent off in a passing ambulance. Now that that is, you see that that uh, we are uh,
1: we're guilty there because we've just laughed, but that's not that's funny. That's quite sad. That poor chap may never have recovered, because that that level of uh, shell shock.
3: Yeah, but it's quite interesting. The vision in my mind of him holding a biscuit out uh, to try and tempt him well, out. Well, as I say, you would have definitely gone for that. <laughs> well, it also went on to. Um, he was worried about getting bit. <laughs> <laughs> now the gun batteries were an obvious target for gas shell bombardments, as just wearing a gas mask rendered the gun detachments. In capable of performing their tasks and how many
1: times have we talked about this about uh, gas isn't to kill you by this stage anymore it's to it's to embugger you a very scientific term much used in the modern army as well anyway once again your major neil Fra- fraser titler this uh, a battery 150 brigade rfa
3: things were certainly pretty bad at the guns the air still reeking of gas the ground saturated with mustard gas liquid and the men all half blind and covered with mustard gas blisters Every order had to be given in writing, as neither I nor the NCOs could articulate a word. And to complete the humour of the situation, everyone was sick at every possible opportunity.
1: Yes, it sounds like after one of the uh, one of those student or army bashes we used to have when we <laughs> were everyone being sick at every possible opportunity. But it's not. Again, it's not really funny, isn't it?
3: No, I mean he's using the the, the words to complete the humour as a, a an ironic statement. Yeah. It's it's not humorous at all, is it? No. It's horrible. And although gunners were not in the front line as you said it's often forgotten that every day i did forget that didn't I? they would send forward a gunnery observation officer gunnery specialist assistant and a signaler to form an observation post from where they could observe the fall of shot from their guns and send back wireless corrections
1: or, and te- that was or done... telephone sorry i put wireless i've just realized yeah, yeah. it's more often telephone yeah. and that was done why Oh, well, uh, it's to ensure the shells hit the target so they could correct onto it. Because remember, they can't see the target from the guns. No. Because they're too far back.
3: But what it did mean is that those teams shared the discomforts and dangers of the infantry. If there was a suitable building surviving, such as a farmhouse roof or a, a church steeple, perhaps, they'd make use of that. But the Germans were always on the lookout for likely observation vantage points, and they'd often target them with extra shell fire. Usually, they would be forced to set up the post amidst the trenches. And this is what 2nd Lieutenant Cyril Dennis of the 212th Siege Battery, Royal Garrison Artillery says. Yeah,
1: I remember interviewing him. He lived in Belsize Park. He was a fabulous old boy. He says, ''The forward observation post would, would be an enlarged shell hole, probably with some sandbags around it, and duckboards to keep you a little bit out of the wet. You'd get your head below the level of the sandbags. You couldn't build them up far or you'd be spotted, but you could get a little shelter from them. You'd use your binoculars to look through the gaps.'' Sometimes you couldn't do that, and there was nothing for it but to look over the edge. That wouldn't last long if the Germans were near. You couldn't get much range of vision, because we never really had the dominating ground. But I could see 400, 500 yards inside the German line from one of our posts. I could see two ruined farms from one post I was in. They must have been 300 yards in. I very rarely saw the Germans. They were no chaps, Gary. (laughs) exposing themselves. He doesn't say Gary. I'm I'm just picturing those Germans not exposing themselves. I used to think sometimes our people were a bit careless like that. Hey, But the Germans were pretty careful. Uh, Once I saw some Germans labouring along behind the line, evidently carrying a latrine bucket. The temptation was too strong for me and I let go two hamster shells. I'm glad I missed them. But uh, it seemed to me afterwards that it was a shit trick. It was totally irrational. They were enemies. They'd have shot me as soon as they possibly could. But they were engaged in this humble task. I
3: had a a feeling that I shouldn't have done it. Hmm. Yes. Now, the journey up to the observation post, that was often fraught with danger. And once again, you're going to be... Well, he keeps changing his bloody unit, doesn't he? He's back and forth. Shall we just say Major Neil Fraser-Titler?
1: Yeah, let's do it. Because he keeps changing his battery. Well, of course, he does across a
3: three years in the line so what does he say as bad luck would have it just as we were going to the observation post the huns started firing salvos of 5.9s right onto it however by making rushes between the salvos we reached my tunnel entrance and all seven of us crawled in it was pitch dark one of the previous shells having upset the only candle to ease the intense congestion of packed humanity, I told MacDonald that he should crawl up the emergency exit tunnel. The next salvo came; one shell blew in the mouth of the emergency exit, and the blast sent MacDonald onto to me and me backwards onto the colonel. At the same time, another shell exploded near the main entrance, causing the last two officers, who were only a few feet in the tunnel, to make desperate efforts to push further up. By this time, I was helpless with laughter. Imagine seven of us on our hands and knees in a narrow tunnel, rather damp and very dark, all pushing towards the centre. I don't know. That's, mm. that,
1: that tickled me that time. I've I've not found that particularly funny before, but I did this. It's the way you read them, Gary. Now uh, the relationship between gunners and the infantry it's it's a mixed it's a mixed thing, isn't it? Uh, the, the, the infantry they, they depend for their lives on the guns, don't they? They're, 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 there's no doubt about that. What what do they do for
3: them? What do they do? Well, they protect them. They take out German artillery. They prepare the way and then chaperone them forward with creeping barrages during the attack and to break up. German attacks. Yet, there could be a degree of jealousy and sometimes even bitterness evident as the infantry often imagined the gunners lived in luxury, safety, <laughs> several miles behind the lines.
1: Yes, and I'm going to play the part of Lieutenant John Staniforth of the 7th Line. Oh, we've had him before, I think. We have had him before. He's quite funny. Uh, he's an interesting chap. Uh, Leinsters, uh, he says this. The people I have conceived a thorough dislike for are our own heavy gunners. They have a hearty lunch in their princely chateau, about six miles behind the lines, and then stroll out, smoking big cigars. On the velvet lawn, they catch sight of their gun. "'Oh, I suppose,' says someone. "'This jolly old gun, what? "'Suppose we let off the bally thing, dear old chap,' suggests another.' So they whistle up a fellow and order a couple of fine old crusted shells, ram them in and poop them off and go back to finish their cigars. Then, for about five hours, the infuriated hun hammers our front trench madly in revenge and a fat blooming gunner asleep in an armchair hears the straffing. Cock's a drowsy eye and remarks lazily, "'Poor old gravel-pushers, coming in for some more hate, what?' And off he goes to sleep again. Uh, (laughs) At least, that's how I picture it. Well, as we've discussed, that's not entirely right, is it?
3: Well, not entirely. And uh, far more serious to infantry was the endless bit of disputes over the question of Royal (laughs) Artillery Shells dropping short... And into their own trenches.
1: And this is something we encountered a lot in our researches.
3: Well, researches, readings. <laughs> and this is what Lieutenant Walter Belford of the 11th Australian Battalion says. Where's he from says. again? He's uh, from Australia. Great. It's you. Oh, no! <laughs> oh, yes, it says me.
1: <laughs> a professionalism. One day, an order was sent to the front-line troops to withdraw from all posts and trenches to a position 250 yards in rear, because the heavies were going to bombard Fritz's Folly, a small, sharp salient just to the north of Guadacore. The troops were withdrawn, and when the time came, the heavies did their worst, and that is no figure of speech, for eyewitnesses, who might certainly have been a trifle biased, stated that not one shell reached the German position. The boys had the mortification of seeing their own miserable trenches pounded with heavy shells for an hour and a half. If ever any troops were cursed heartily, it was the artillery engaged in this operation. The only bright spot in an otherwise depressing afternoon was when the Germans, thinking that they might assist in the demolition of the Australian trenches, whilst the going was good, started a return shoot. The first enemy shell fell right in the middle of the folly. It was evidently a bullseye for duckboards, sandbags and other trench furniture flew high in the air, and the diggers managed a, a faint cheer. They felt that things had been evened up somewhat. <laughs> and that's a sort of exaggerated picture of how the infantry felt. They felt that oh, just their own artillery was a, as big an enemy as the Germans.
3: Although the gunners generally denied that such things ever happened and demanded solid proof. Did they? And this caused further unrest, as Lieutenant Walter Belford goes on to say.
1: Compliance were frequently sent to the artillery unit's concern. These only brought the usual response that uh, if the troops would send back a piece of one of the shells, <laughs> or preferably a whole shell, for there were many duds, then the matter would be inquired into and steps taken to find out the guns. If any, they were doing the short shooting. Naturally, there was a snort of indication, indication, indignation from the front-line troops. And one officer savagely remarked, "What the hell do the bastards expect me to do? Catch one of the bloody things before it lobs?" <laughs> Naturally, there was not much chance of finding any shells or fragments in the soft, rain-sodden ground. Brilliant! Brilliant. Thanks, mate.
3: Thanks. Now, men like Belford found the whole scene (laughs) extremely frustrating. They knew guns were firing short, but they couldn't seem to get anything done to stop it with the intransigent gunners. And once more, you're going to be Lieutenant Walter Belford.
1: It was always very hard to get the artillery to admit that the short shooting was caused by any of the batteries engaged, although it is a well-known fact that a sudden drop in the temperature would affect the range of guns to a great degree. In very cold weather, 18-pounders would lose 500 yards in 2,500, and heavier guns are affected correspondingly. Many troops in the poor bloody infantry knew these things, And yet all complaints were treated with contumely, that's a funny word Gary, and disbelief. A good story is told of some infantry who'd been shelled quite a while by their own artillery. At length, one of the officers made it back to the battery that was doing most of the short shooting and offered to surrender to it, if only it would stop firing. Again, we laugh, but of course, a battery firing short does kill members of your own Side. Uh it, you know, and there's nothing worse than in a sense being killed by red you know, blue on blue, blah, blah, red on
3: red. Now most of all, the front line soldiers really enjoyed it when senior artillery officers who were sent to the front line to investigate, found the shells falling short all around them. And this is Lieutenant Colonel William Croft of the eleventh Royal Scots, who's from Edinburgh. Tudor, our commander of Royal Artillery, was nearly killed here by one of our own shells. We had repeatedly complained of short shooting on the part of the 4.5-inch howitzers. Nothing very original in that. It was difficult to bring it home to any particular battery, because every group always assured us that they were not firing at the time we complained of. Tudor was up one day when our howitzers were indulging in their nasty little habits. Making us clear the trench, he went forward into a sap, The next shells buried him. (laughs) He was then perfectly satisfied that our howitzers were uh, shooting short. And Tudor is one of the great, uh,
1: uh, with UNIAC, was one of the great artillery innovators and things, but he
3: he certainly got it put right up him that time, didn't he? Now, the dispute over shells uh, landing short could never really be resolved, as it was inevitable as when the guns become worn, the shells would fly ever more erratically. and Erotically. erratically, and this could have a calamitous impact.
1: Yeah, and, uh, the, I mean, the, this is inevitable. The guns are constantly firing. In wet weather, in places like the Somme and Eaps, it's often could, they couldn't move the guns back. They couldn't, so they, they'd have to fire all, even though the bar- they had to fire.
3: Uh, but then sometimes there, were, there could be other mistakes, couldn't there? Yeah, you can make a mistake in the gunnery calculations. And after all, the opposing front-line trenches were not far apart in well, some th- cases.
1: They're within the margin of error for, a, for an £18 You know, if they're they're
3: only 100 yards away, uh, well, you know. But overall, behind all the complaints, there was a realisation by most of the more thoughtful infantrymen... Hang on. (laughs) ..that they depended for their lives on the guns of the Royal Artillery.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've talked through this, but let's reiterate, they dealt as far as possible with the German artillery. They protected... The British trenches during a German attack. During a British offensive, they knocked out or suppressed the German batteries. They smashed the German trenches. They took out the identified machine gun posts. They provided the creeping barrages, as you said before. They chaperoned, like, you know, the, the, like a nurse made the infantry over the top and across no man's land. And then they could provide a wall, a barrage of shells to stop any German counterattack. Well, what do you think of that?
3: Well, that was at least the theory. But as we know, things all didn't always go according to the plan.
1: Now we've just—this has been a short episode for today because we feel you need a rest, dear dear listener. But uh, we've got just got one more advert for you. What, what, what do you want to advertise now, Gary? Is there something in your mind?
3: Well, in theory, <laughs> I should add, uh, our new book will be available when this podcast is heard. So laugh or cry. Ooh. The British Soldier on the Western Front, 1914-1918, by Peter Hart and Gary Bain. We're lovely, aren't we? Well, one of us is. Uh, and that will be available from all good bookshops. Uh, if you enjoy the podcasts, we think you'll enjoy the book. Uh, if you don't enjoy the podcast, buy the book anyway.
1: Yeah, it, 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 Door stop, keep doorstop, your table level. Devil,
3: there's so many uses. Yeah, you could throw it at people you don't like. Keep it on an elastic band, you'll get it back. Buy it for somebody you don't like. Buy it for somebody you do like. Just buy it. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for listening to the
1: show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, blah. us, blah, blah. you can now buy us a coffee.
3: Blah, blah. blah. Visit
1: www.buymeacoffee.com.
3: Www. Www. Backslash pg. MH or visit www dot blah 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 and we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at BuyMeACoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast